So, we have a new patron. Yes, and awkwardly, or beneficially, it's a patron whose work we have cited in the past. It's patronception. That was last week's joke. No, this is a more topsy-turvy, timey-wimey thing. You see, when we talked about America's Stonehenge and the whole QAnon thing, we were relying on the work of one proper... Or dapper... Gander. Who may or may not be an actual goose. For reference material on that wonderful and weird story. And now the gander has gandered at our proper property. Dapper? Dappery? I think, my Um, friend, mm. our goose is cooked. Well, I guess what's good for the goose is good for the ander. Meta. Yeah. Whatever the case, the proper and dapper gander has patronised us. And as our newish patron is traditionally taken to be both part of the problem and its solution. You can never trust a goose, after all. Which I guess means we'll be making veiled threats as per usual. We know what you're up to, gussied goose. We know what you did last summer. I hear they're making a remake. Yeah, without Jeffrey Coombs it'll be pointless. Even with Jeffrey Coombs it was pointless. True. True. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, coming to you from Auckland, New Zealand, in the same place at the same time. It is me, Josh Addison, and then Dr. M. Denton, once again assembling some sort of some sort of alcoholic concoction. There's pourings of small things into larger things. There's ice involved. I don't know. Sometimes I, I sometimes I regret being a non-drinker because I don't get to play around with this sort of stuff. But then I try alcohol from time to time and realise I made the right decision. It's true. You actually have made the right decision. Mm. That and well, I say that and caffeine. You actually do. I go a through a lot of caffeine. Of caffeine. Yes. You just don't drink it in the form of coffee. No. You drink it in the vastly inferior form of Mountain Dew mm. and and whatever other a drink which in New Zealand English ever so slightly sounds dodgy. Well, it does, yes. Especially because, and here I better use an American pronunciation, for a long time the slogan was uh, on the side, printed on the side of Kansas Mountain Dew, was nothing is more intense than slamming a dew. Which is fine if you pronounce the word D E W, dew, but when you pronounce it Jew, it suddenly becomes a hate crime. Yeah, and mm. actually, oddly enough, this does fit into... It does, actually. ...our topic, because we're going all the way back to the 1930s and the precursor to World War II. Mm. Oh, we actually don't have a... We need a kind of a storm effect. I mean, I could yeah, do the, the whole... Dun, dun, dun. Uh, give it a go. It doesn't, doesn't really fit. Not yeah, we need some right kind time. of ominous rolling mm. thunder attack. Oh, well. Work do, on do that you for the next game, time. game Rolling Thunder? Uh, yes, I do. It was terrible, fun. terrible arcade port of a great arcade original. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're not we're not only um, uh, out by ninety years or so. Uh, we're also out by one day. We're recording this a day early. Why is that? Because tomorrow and the next day, I will be attending a conference in Paris. Deserve a dun dun. I mean, obviously, you want some sort of accordion music to play there. Some, some sort of. I mean, I'm assuming you're going to be uh, indulging in all of the the crude cultural stereotypes. You'll be Zoom calling in a beret, holding a baguette, doing saying, my impec- 
football, the Kulpoirot impersonation, and then pointing out he's not French, he's Belgian. He's Belgian. So no, there is a conference going on over the next two days on conspiracy theories being run in Paris time, which means I basically start the conference at 7 and end the conference at 2am in the morning. I mean, I'm just stressing that because it will be quite late. I do know mm. that 2am traditionally is a morning time. I just want to stress it. 2am in the morning, as yes. in very late at night. And that kind of makes it impossible for us to record tomorrow. So we're going to record today instead. So mm. surprise. Surprise. Even though it's not October. Mm. And indeed, it was it was February, which is, hang on, February is the middle of our summer, so that must be the middle of winter. A, a dreary February day in Berlin. When, we, uh, uh, when the events that we're going to visit today occur. Because today, after talking about it a lot, mm. we are finally covering the Reichstag fire. Not even less appropriate. Yes, precisely. Well, mm. I, mean, I mean, unfortunately, we've already worked out that... Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not sick of it. I'm, I'm still not sick of this thing, but it does... It, 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 it has... It needs to come at the right time. It's yes. a question and of... Arguably, we might be overusing it. It's possible. I mean, I don't think we have yet, but no. we're getting close to the point of overusing it. Close to the point? Yep, no, I see no, what you mean. your mother! Mm. Um, yep, we're pr pr someone probably should take that away from us. But anyway, uh, there is one. There is a proper chime to play in, of course, now, which is the let's start the episode properly chime. Perfectly appropriate. Yes, now the Reichstag fire, I mean, it's, yeah, like you say, we've mentioned it I don't know how many times, but we've never actually devoted a proper episode to it, which is kind of weird, because it's one of the, sort of one of the canonical false flag theories, really. Whenever people want to talk about false flags of any significance, the Reichstag fire seems to come up. I think we most recently mentioned it in that, that Dear to Care paper that that woman whose name I've forgotten put out, which was all Amy about... Amy Baker Benjamin. Yes. Yeah. How, how the UN should should investigate 9-11 inside job um, theories. And, and yeah, the Reichstag was one of the ones she mentioned of a false flag that really happened in the really real world, but but did it? Well, yes, therein lies the question, mm. because many people will assert that the Reichstag fire, which we'll go into the history of in just a minute, mm. was a bona fide false flag committed by the Nazis to blame the communists in order to take power in mm -hmm. Germany. And I went through the academic literature to pull out some quotes about the Reichstag fire that academics use. So, Jack Z. Bratich claims, The Reichstag was the name of the building torched in 1933 that paved the way for Hitler's declaration of emergency state powers. While a lone communist was blamed for it, subsequent investigations and historians have concluded that the arson was an inside job. And so that occurs in his book Conspiracy Panics, Political Rationality and Popular Culture. Uh, Erika Bergman claims German historians are, for example, still debating the plausibility of the 1933 German parliament Reichstag arson being a false flag operation of the Nazis, pinning the blame on the communists. It appears in his book, Conspiracy and Populism in 2018. Uh, David A. Hughes wrote in 2020, in 1933, the Reichstag fire caused by the Nazis was blamed on communists and used as the pretext for a witch hunt of political opponents, and that occurs in his paper, 9-11 Truth and the Silence of the IR Discipline, which we, which we reviewed at, yeah. last mm. year. 
and finally Lunster Halvin Smith back in 2013, in his book Conspiracy Theory in America, wrote, Among other terrorist actions, Nazi conspirators set fire to the parliament headquarters, the Reichstag, and pinned the blame on a feeble-minded communist whom they had planted at the scene. So even within the conspiracy theory theory literature, there are a bunch of people saying either the Reichstag fire was a false flag, or the consensus is we don't know, but it's very much in the running. Now, we have alluded a lot in this podcast to the idea that when people talk about the Reichstag fire being an inside job or a false flag event, that they're getting it wrong. Mm. But we've never actually substantiated that claim. No. Today, no. today we finally do it. I think we will. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there's going to be an unavoidable amount of, of, of maybe to this. There, there's, um, it's a long time ago, uh, basically all the people involved are dead now. A lot of them died during the war, uh, not, not long after the events. Um, so there's, there isn't going to be 100% Iron, cast iron proof either way, but um, we can we can say what we know now. Some of the things we do know for sure: the Reichstag fire itself. Have you? I have been to Berlin, and I'm pretty sure while we were walking through the centre of Berlin, someone said to me, "That's the Reichstag building," and I said, "Ah, oh, okay," and then went off and looked at something else. So I think I've been in in the vicinity of the Reichstag, but I haven't actually. I been believe to so it. as well. Yes, mm. I've been, I mean, I've been to Berlin several times, and I think I've seen it, mm. but it's never been imprinted on me. No, I mean, at the time, this well, this was a long time ago. I didn't know the significance of it at all, really, and I certainly didn't know the the full details of it until I started researching it properly for this episode. So, because well, I, so, I think I think in my case, I assumed when someone pointed to me, that's the Reichstag building. I assumed, well, the original one burnt down in a fire, so that must be a new Reichstag mm. building. It turns out the current Reichstag building is the old it Reichstag is. building. There was another Reichstag building between the old one burning down and it being rehabilitated, but the current Reichstag building is the old Reichstag it is. Yep. building, proving it would never caught fire in the first place, Ooh. and I declare false flag. Dang. Yes, so, on the night of Monday the 27th of February 1933... The Reichstag building caught fire and was uh, damaged um, seriously enough that they could no longer use it as the parliament building, and then it was further damaged during the war um, and fell into disuse kind of after that. It was uh, after the German reunification in the early 90s, they started uh, the task of restoring it, um, and it finally became the actual parliament building again in 1999. Now, now Josh, you say Monday 27th of February 1933, mm. Wasn't that exactly four weeks after Hitler had been sworn in as Chancellor? Apparently it was, yes, although I don't know that the timing of it was um, uh, was actually a consideration of the supposed arsonists, but then who the supposed arsonists were is, is part of the story. So here's, again, I, I, I guess we can we can call this the official theory because um, this is this is the stuff that people don't, uh, this is the bits of it that people don't dispute. What is what is not in dispute is that a man, a du an unemployed Dutch construction worker called Marinus van der Lubbe, who was also a communist, uh, was blamed for starting the fire and arrested and tried, along with four other communists, uh, one of whom was the chairman of the Communist Party of Germany, which I think had just been sort of disestablished or something. They, they, they had already by this point said that I think communists and Jews weren't allowed 
for, to hold office or something like that. Um, and three other Bulgarian communists um, who had just arrived in Berlin, who were who uh, quite high up in, in the Communist International Organization. So Mr. van der Lubbe was arrested on the scene. He was apparently found outside the building with firelighters in his possession. He was panting and sweaty. Um, I don't know if he said, yes, it was me, I'd done it at the time, although he would later claim that he was solely responsible for it. Um, the other communists were arrested later. I think the, the, the fellow who was the, the former uh, chair of the Communist Party, Goebbels, or one of them, had basically said, you know, bring that guy in, and he surrendered himself to the police pretty much straight away, and then the other three were picked up quite quickly. So van der Lubbe, yeah, he, he in trial, claimed... Uh, full responsibility. He said he'd done it to protest to the treatment of the working classes as a as a communist himself. Um, there was a trial in Leipzig known as the Leipzig trial, uh, and the result of that trial was that uh, Mr. Van der Lubbe was convicted of the crime, while the other four were acquitted because they all basically had solid alibis. Um, the three Bulgarians had only just arrived in Berlin like a day or two ago. There wasn't there, there didn't really seem to be much a case about of. Uh, against them, it was seemed more like um, they were the they were they were I wouldn't say the usual suspects since these guys had only just come on the scene, but they were sort of prominent communists and were rounded up because of that, not because anyone had any immediate evidence um, that they were behind it. So, Van der Lubbe con tried, convicted in 1933, and then executed in January of 1934 by guillotine, according to. Um, some of the stuff I've read. So the judge in the trial, he concluded that there had been a communist conspiracy to burn down the Reichstag, um, but declared that with the exception of Mr. van der Lubbe, there was insufficient evidence to connect uh, the rest of the accused to the fire or this alleged conspiracy. Yes, so we have a case here of you probably didn't act alone, but you're the only person we can actually pin for this particular crime. Mm. Now, this has led to the nomenclature of this being what's called the single culprit theory, that van der Lubbe was the person convicted, van der Lubbe was the person who took sole responsibility for the crime, and thus van der Lubbe committed the crime. Now, the single culprit theory kind of has the same resonance as the single bullet theory or magic bullet theory when it comes to JFK discussion, in that people tend to use it in a quite derogatory way. Oh, if you think van der Lubbe was responsible for the burning down of the Reichstag. You believe in a single culprit theory, but the whole point of the, the discussion is that van der Lubbe was the one convicted and was the one who took responsibility. But no one really doubts that there weren't other people involved, at least in the organisation and planning stages of the burning down of the Reichstag. It's just that no one else was convicted and thus we do not know who the other culprits were, other than the fact that van der Lubbe was willing to take responsibility for the action. Mm. Yes, yeah, so th this is very much a case of the, 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 the finding of the trial is sort of a matter of law and isn't necessarily a statement on what actually happened, it's what could be proved. And in fact, in going in the other direction, over the years, Mr van der Lubbe um, his sentence was, uh, was 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 retroactively lessened. I'm mean, a little bit late for him, obviously. He was long dead by then. But um, they really shouldn't have executed yes. that Van Luber person. 
should have got 10 to 12 well, years. They I'm basically joking. did. They sort mm. of, at one point, they sort of reduced, they retroactively reduced his sentence from death to eight years or something, just symbolically. Um, and, then, and then that sort of carried on until eventually um, they, the German authorities of the day, uh, much later, just annulled the whole trial and he was posthumously pardoned. But, uh, but not, the reason... not because they thought he wasn't guilty, mm. just because they went, well, the Nazi regime was. Terribly unjust. Yes, that, and well, that was a show yeah. trial. There yeah. was, um, you know, so, so that so that that isn't them ruling he didn't do it. That's them ruling he shouldn't have been convicted and executed in the way yeah. that he was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. The trial itself was apparently uh, a good bit of theatre. Um, in Germany at the time, I don't know if this is still true, but certainly at the time in Germany, uh, under their uh, their 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 court system, um, defendants were allowed to sort of counter examine uh, or whatever the term is to, to directly address at any rate the witnesses had been brought against them so there were some quite sort of heated scenes where some of these um, passionate communists uh, had a go at Joseph Goebbels who was called as a, as a witness and so you had these exchanges of of them basically saying communism's awesome and Russia's the best country in the world and Goebbels replying you're an idiot Germany's great and it, uh, it, it was good theatre uh, didn't actually have a lot to do with the case, I think. Now, of course, the important, the, the really important thing about all of this is that, of course, in response to the, the fire, in the, immediately in response, the very next day after the fire, the Nazi uh, party signed... Along with President Paul Hindenburg. Yeah, yes, yeah, he, he was still in the, on the scene at that point. Um, signed the Reichstag fire degree into law, which... I think you find that's decree, not degree. Decree? Uh, it'll do. So translated, it said... On the basis of Article 48, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution of the German Reich, the following is ordered in defence against communist state endangering acts of violence. Section 1. Articles 114, 115, 117, 118, 123, 124 and 153 of the Constitution of the German Reich are suspended until further notice. It is therefore permissible to restrict the rights of personal freedom, that would be habeas corpus as we call it, Freedom of expression, including the freedom of the press, the freedom to organise and assemble, the privacy of postal, telegraphic and telephonic communications, warrants for house searches, orders for confiscations, as well as restrictions on property are also permissible beyond the legal limits otherwise prescribed. Quite useful that they wrote these German laws down in English. Well, I did say translated at the start, but yes, yes, obviously it was in German originally. Um, so, so there straight away took away a whole lot of civil rights under the pretext that that Germany was was in mortal danger from these um, communists. Um, and then in March, the Enabling Act of 1933 mm -hmm. went into effect, basically making Hitler the dictator of Germany. Yeah. So that was, I think. So, so this is uh, what the fire was 27th of February. So the Reichstag fire decree was the 28th of February, and then the Enabling Act was. 24th, I think, of March, less than a month later. And that was, yeah, I, I forget the exact details of it, but essentially it said that Hitler and his party could make whatever laws they wanted and didn't need President Hindenburg or whatever. They, they, they could do whatever they wanted was, was the effect of it. So that's what we know. The, the, the fire did happen. There was a trial. It had that outcome. or it had the, 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 the trial itself had that specific legal outcome and the specific consequences of the fire. Uh, it was really the event that, that catalyzed um, Hitler's rise to dictatorship. But um, from this point on, things get a little bit more murky. Because now we enter into the realm of conspiracy theory. I think that one works. 
I think yes. that one was justified, yeah. So there are two questions. One, did Van der Lubbe actually set the fire himself or was he working in concert with others? Or did he set the fire at all? Was it really the Nazis? I feel you could probably fit one of those in any time someone mentions the Nazis, but we better not, or this podcast will double in length. So we'll just have to, we might just have to, to, to restrain ourselves a little. Okay, okay. Now again, van der Lubbe himself claimed that he did it, and that he did it acting alone. Now maybe, yeah, now, maybe. Yeah, now he probably said he acted alone in order to take sole responsibility for the event to ensure that any collaborators would get away. Or because he was he, he was a Nazi tool, if not agent, and was doing that to hide their involvement. Well, but, that's um, also true. That's, that's the other theory. If, if we accept that van der Lubbe took responsibility sincerely and said, look, I actually did do this thing and did do it, it's also quite possible he would say, and I did it myself with no friends or companions whatsoever, so... No need to go and check whether anyone else was involved. Don't go smelling anyone's hands. Mm. No, no, I'm the only person responsible in order to make sure that other communist agents might not be found. Yes. If you accept that van der Lubbe actually acted alone. Mm. Now, the evidence that he didn't, that uh, people tend to point to, is um, the claim that the extent of the fire, the extent of it throughout the building of the Reichstag um, was too great to be the work of one person. Um, Otherwise, people, you have to imagine van der Lubbe just running, running around at a mad yeah. pace, although he was found very, very sweaty, setting although fires in different locations You'd probably get a bit more standing inside a burning building as well. Well, yes, and also, given what we know about the speed in which fires spread, you probably don't want to be running around setting fires in a building because you're not likely to then get out yes. of the building. So the claim is that um, there were... People claim to have identified 11 different places where fires were started to cause it to go up the way it, it did. It shows it wasn't accidental. This is not a case oh, of yes. an, a building accidentally burning down and then someone being blamed for it. Mm. Of, no, there are definite arson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there are multiple starting points here. So it's very definitely the work of someone or it's the most unlucky building mm. in the Weimar Republic. So people, so, yeah, so people would say that that shows... That it can't have been the work of one person because no, because there, there just wasn't enough time based on witness. You know, when the flames started, people started seeing them and so on. There simply wasn't enough time for a person to cover that much ground to start that many fires. Um, so that's that's I think that that's the main bit of evidence I've seen for people to claim that it couldn't have been just one person. But that still doesn't say okay, which there was more than one person. But yeah, yeah, which group of people I mean, was it? A bunch of communists? Been. Was it a bunch of Nazis? Or why not both? Well, they were kind of they were kind of mortal enemies at that point. Yeah, but let me remind you of Paula Abdul and the song "Opposites Attract." It's a natural fact, Joshua. It's a natural fact. It's true, but you leave MC Scat Cat out of this. Um, now, the Nazis, it seems, also wanted there to be a group involved. The the, the communists um, immediately pretty much started saying that. Um, it was a group of Nazis who did it, and the Nazis really wanted it to be a group of communists because they they wanted a, as big a threat as possible so that they could do what they did, basically. Um, and it, it, certainly, it certainly sounds like both parties, the Nazis and the communists, 
immediately started bringing up conspiracy theories to to shift as much blame as possible onto each other. But um, but 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 why 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 the Nazis then? Why do people think the Nazis were behind the fire and not the communists? Well, because it was politically convenient for mm. the Nazis. I mean, one day later. We have a whole bunch of new legislation going through the... I'd about to say the Bundaberg. As Bundestag. As, 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 <laughs> going through the German ginger beer fa factory. Mm. The, the Bundestag? Bundestag. I don't know. That's the name of the new building. I don't know if that's what it was called back then, but yeah. yes. Oh, well, we'll the government, the anyway. Yeah, we'll just go the, Bun yeah. the Bundaberg, the small parliamentary city of German politicians. Mm. So it was very convenient for the Nazis. They... They signed in new decrees, they had the Enabling Act. Within a month, basically, they were in complete control of what was the Weimar Republic and was now becoming the Third Reich. So, politically, this fire was incredibly beneficial. And if you do the whole qui bono thing, or who benefits, we end up going, well, who benefits from the story? Not the communists. No, hell no. Because, basically, the communists were a powerful block within the German parliamentary system, and a month later they do not exist as a parliamentary power at all, the Nazis have complete control. So if the communists started the fire, they got no benefit whatsoever. If the Nazis started the fire, well, it's quite obvious what they wanted to attempt, because we saw that a day and then a month later. They seize control. Mm. So while the official story in Germany it was immediately that it were the communists were behind it, um, straight away in, say, the US and the UK, the papers were, were very sceptical that on the grounds that, yes, it was, it was just too convenient. The Nazis got exactly the excuse they'd been waiting for. Um, now, the communists themselves also tried to sort of distance themselves a little bit from Marinus van der Lubbe. I don't believe he... I don't think he was particularly high up in the in the communist organisation, so they so he was were spreading kind of a Jack Ruby, a little bit. I don't know yeah, something the like Jack that. Jack Ruby of nineteen thirties Germany. Mm. Interesting. Only he got um, he got he got executed by guillotine instead of dying of cancer. So I don't know who got the best deal there? Yeah, actually, that that that's a live question. I actually mm. don't know. Now the we, we'll get back, we'll get onto this um, later, but the the mental state of Mr. Van der Lubbe was brought up a lot. Um, he's well, I mean, like we've already do tend to be frowned upon in, in decent society. Well, indeed, but we we had that uh, quote earlier. Uh, lone communist, uh, communist. Oh yes, a feeble-minded communist was Lance de Haven Smith's version of it. The the um, the communists themselves were were spreading stories that he was quote half-witted. Um, Suggesting that either he 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 didn't have anything to do with them, he'd acted on his own, not really understanding the full significance of what he might be doing, or, or that he'd been he was duped, duped, yeah, duped, duped into doing the Nazis. Nazis' dirty work. Now, of course, the other issue is that the people were investigating the Reichstag fire were the Nazis themselves. Mm. So the people who were going, it's definitely the communists. We'll rely on our independent investigation of people who believe it's definitely the communists to figure out that it was definitely the communists who started the communist fire in the formerly non-communist Reichstag. Mm. Um, and there, was, there, there are other little bits of, of evidence. Um, tell me about Fritz Polchow. Right, so this is testimony which actually occurs after World War II. I think it's either late 50s or early 60s. But Fritz Pol 
Polchow? Polchow? Polchow's, Polchow. right. or possibly Polchow, I don't know. If... Uh, was a firefighter assigned to Company 6 on Linnenstrasse, uh, and he arrived on the night of the fire and was sent deep into the building to investigate exactly what was going on. He finds a staircase going down into the basement area of the Reichstag and ran into a group of police officers coming towards him from below. But at the time he's going into the building, at around about 9.18pm, which is very early on in the fire, there really should have only been one police officer in the building who'd gone down to the cellars to search for arsonists. So the fact that he then encounters a bunch of uniformed men mm. leaving the building at speed, people are going, well, uh, why were they there? And what were they doing? And were they in disguise? Mm. So there were a whole bunch and of And if they were the anomalies. police, I believe the Nazis controlled the police at that time. Well, so, yes. Yeah. Now, of course, this is testimony which occurs well after the event. And we're going to talk a lot in the second half of this episode about the various histories that have been written about the event. Not all of the evidence is trustworthy, in part because it turns out sometimes the evidence is put forward, turns out to be fabricated or can't be substantiated, and in other cases has been elicited well after the event and kind of suffers from the problem of trying to recall events from 30 years prior. Mm. Now, also, in the summer of 1933... There was this this sort of mock counter trial in London organised by German communists, which is so people talk about the London trial and the Leipzig trial. The Leipzig trial being the quote unquote official one, the one actually conducted in in Germany. And this London trial was sort of a a, a bit of a like every, everything was quite scripted. You know, the, the the all the the people bringing their cases forwards. It was all kind of written in advance. But um, they brought they brought up argumentation and, and evidence which they claim showed that um, the, all the defendants were not guilty and that the Nazis were definitely behind it. But again, this was the communists doing their trials, so not really any more objective than the Nazis doing yes. theirs if, in Leipzig. If you were concerned about the Nazis investigating a crime and coming to the conclusion that their political enemies were responsible, you should also be concerned by the communists conducting an investigation and discovering that their political enemies were in fact responsible. Okay, so these seem as if they're slightly polemical. Mm. Now there's an American journalist called John Gunther, who'll come up a couple of times, who was there covering the trial in Leipzig. Um, so at one thing, uh, later, um, he cited a letter that was allegedly written by Karl Ernst before his death, uh, and Mr Gunther believed that the Na Nazis... Um, heard that Mr. van der Lubbe was boasting that he was planning to attack the Reichstag and started a second simultaneous fire that they blamed on, blamed on him. So this is a little bit of a Lee Hop thing, really, a little bit the idea that they people um, had advance warning that it was going to happen, let it happen, and then quite literally poured fuel on the fire. I was about to say, they, they, they doused the existing mm. flames with oil. Yeah. Um, now, in the in the opposing evidence that the Nazis were behind it, is the claim that, that apparently, by by most accounts, the head Nazis were were quite genuinely shocked when they heard that the Reichstag was on fire. Yeah. Um, so supposedly Hitler was having dinner with Goebbels at the time, and when Goebbels received a phone call about the fire, he hung up because he assumed it was a joke. Yes. I, I can't remember who it was who called him to say the Reichstag's on fire, and he's like, oh, "Yeah, sure it is." Click. 
And then when the guy rang back, said, no, 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 seriously, it's on fire. I can see the flames from my house. Then he finally took it seriously. So they, you know, he, he didn't seem to think uh, it was it was plausible at all. Now, Goring joked about the event afterwards, claiming that as they had to use the opera house as the kind of replacement Reichstag, he felt embarrassed as the opera was more important than the Reichstag, and thus this was an inconvenience to the people of Berlin. He also, and I assume this is not so joking, claimed he had enough reasons already to take measures against the communists as it stood. Mm. Then we have um, Richard J. Evans points out, um, as he says, if, <clears throat> if Goebbels had been involved in the preparations, why didn't he mention them in his private diaries when he describes preparations for far greater crimes, including the mass murder of Europe's Jews? So he wasn't squeamish about... Um, Writing about, down all the other yeah, bad stuff he was detailing doing. But for the some things. reason, he wasn't willing to help set fire to the Reichstag last night. Here Hitler really enjoyed his Flin Mignon, which was toasted over the burning legislative books of the German parliament. Mm. Now, we should also talk a little about, about Mr. van der Lubbe and his mental state. Um, so some people have... He's been called a half-wit and, and feeble-minded. I saw a video of a guy describing it who, was who called him a, a drooling moron or something. People weren't particularly kind in their assessment of him. But apparently, when, when he took the stand in court and talked about what he did and why he did it, he was, he was quite hard to follow. He sort of rambled all over the place and, and um, didn't quite seem to know where he was going at times. Like but, a host of this podcast. Well, you're not, not entirely... Are we saying we burned down the Reichstag? Are you? I'm, I, I refuse to comment in case right. my comments are incriminatory. Okay. So, again, that, that journalist John Gunther described him as, quote, an obvious victim of manic depressive psychosis. But we have, um, there's a fellow called Fritz Tobias. Now, Fritz Tobias he's is going to be our Kerry Thornley if Kerry Thornley didn't go mad. I've told you about Kerry Thorne in the past, but to remind people, yeah. and thus for you to pretend that you remember these things. So Kerry Thorne was the person who wrote the book Oswald that detailed widely how the Oswald was the assassin of JFK, because he was the former bunkmate of Lee right. Harvey Oswald in the army. And so he was basically entreated by the members of the Warren Commission to write this book describing how Lee Harvey Oswald had the right background, the right training, and the right kind of psychological character to be a lone assassin of an American president. And then eventually Kerry Thornley ended up being involved in the writing of the Principia Discordia. He discovered libertarianism and died believing that actually it was a Thor Society plot to destroy the American institution of democracy dating back to around about the 1890s and both he and Lee Harvey Oswald were patsies. Right. So, so Fritz's where Thornley started by kind of writing the book mm -hmm. on why van der Lubbe acted alone. Yes, yeah, so he, uh, Mr Tobias, was a West German public servant and a part-time historian. Um, in the early 60s, he published a series of articles in Der Spiegel, the German newspaper, which was then turned into a book. Um, and in this book, he argued that Mr van der Lubbe had acted alone. Um, he showed that he, uh, Mr. Van der Lubbe was a pyromaniac with a long history of burning down buildings or, or trying to burn down buildings, um, and that he had attempted to burn down several buildings in the days leading up to the 27th of February. He also argued that 
if the Nazis had actually put him up to it, um, he never would have seen trial. They would have they would have killed him as quickly as possible before like Jack to cover Ruby did to Lee Harvey Oswald. Exactly. Now a lot of people I'm have argued that we're saying that the Nazis ordered Jack Ruby to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. That would be ridiculous. Well, obviously, obviously it would, but I'm I'm assuming somebody has. Yes. Um, I mean, I think Kerry Thornley believed that well, actually. Yes. Um, so lots of people have argued against Tobias's view. Now, I, I guess we should, we'll, we'll go through all these arguments. There seems to be a lot of... Um, it, it reminds me a bit of the... the uh, you've probably already noticed the parallels with 9-11. Um, an act enables a government to do the sorts of things they've been looking for an excuse to do for a while. Um, obviously, I mean, the Iraq war wasn't great, but it wasn't exterminating... Uh, entire races of people but um you can you can see at least a similarity and again as we see with the the whole 9-11 inside job stuff people seem to spend a lot of time picking holes in the official theory and there's not none but less actual evidence advanced to support the theory of their own however but that being said the primary argument that people take against the work of Fritz Tobias. And I think arguably most people take it that Fritz Tobias really did write the book on Reichstag fire back in 1962. He's the Gerald Posner of the story. It's case closed, according to Fritz Tobias. Most of the arguments against Tobias's account is that, well, look, Tobias is operating in a West German space in the 1960s. And given that former Nazis under the Third Reich had basically been allowed to become government officials in West Germany after World War II. He was relying on Nazis for evidence that the Nazis didn't commit this horrendous crime. And so people like to point out that Tobias's main source was this man by the name of Walter Zirkins, who was a lawyer and police officer who had been a main investigator of the fire at the time and even testified in the Leipzig trial. The problem being that Zipkins later rose within the ranks of the SS and was eventually considered a war criminal for his part in the Holocaust. Mm, so possibly a questionable source. People have also pointed out that on the other hand, um, uh, Mr Tobias was also friendly with the friends of um, Martinus van der Lubbe as well. So he had connections to both sides. Yes. So, so it is true, he was very reliant on the investigative work of the primary officer who investigated the Reichstag fire, but you kind of have to be when you're investigating whether trial is good or bad by looking at the evidence put forward by the people going, this is good or bad evidence. Mm. So there are a bunch of opposing views um, to Mr Fritz Tobias. Should we, just, should we just go through them one at a time? I think so, I okay. think so. So let's start with Willy Munzenberg, who was a communist and... Who wrote The Brown Book on the Reichstag Fire and Hitler Terror. Mm, not a bad title for a book. No. I assume it was actually brown. I'm assuming so. A reference yeah. to brown shirts or something, I don't know. Uh, but yes, he, he was a communist and he, with a bunch of other communists, uh, wrote this book which included accounts of Nazi brutality uh, and an, an argument that van der Lubbe was a pawn or a Patsy. Now, this book became a bestseller, ended up being translated into 24 languages and sold like hotcakes around Europe and also in the US. Mm -hmm. But it turned out to be more a polemical work than 
a book that rested on good evidence. Mm. Now, we also have Hans Gesevius, uh, who was a German diplomat and an intelligence officer who worked in the Gestapo in the early 30s. Um, he published his autobiography called To the Bitter End. Just after World War Just II. I mean, this World is actually very close. This 1946. Is yep. um, so he de detailed his involvement with the German resistance. He claimed that the Reichstag fire had been the work of a, an SA detachment organised by Gruppenführer Karl Ernst. The man we've already who, heard about, who, yeah. Um, who, who was cited earlier and including the same man called Hans Georgi or Heine Gewehr. Um, apparently the death of a stormtrooper called Adolf Roll, who was murdered in November of 1933, was uh, cited as evidence of a conspiracy. Because Roll had reportedly confessed, confessed to being involved. So his death was reported in December of 1933, uh, by a, a, the Pariser Tageblatt, which is a German exile, uh, exi German in exile newspaper. I assume Pariser means it was coming out of Paris. Um, so, in, in, in that report of his death, they claimed that a man who knew too much had been eliminated. Uh, Mr. Tobias, though, argues against um, this 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 account. Um, he says that even if Rawls' confession was false. Um, it would have been an embarrassment for the SA, so they, they would have had a reason to silence him whether he was telling the truth or not. Yes, precisely. It turns out that the Nazis were not, were not good employers. Yeah, not, not shy about uh, getting rid of anyone that, that, that was inconvenient to them. Who's next? Eduard Kalak, a Croatian. He helped found the International Committee for Scholarly Research on the Causes and Consequences of the Second World War which was also known as the Luxembourg Committee. And he was a prominent at-the-time critic of Tobias's single culprit theory and helped publish a volume of, I put in quotes, scholarly documentation, for that was its name, concerning the Reichstag fire as late as 1972. Mm. Now, this is... This is actually quite nice because actually this does resemble the kind of investigations into 9-11 that's been led by people in the inside job community in that this is where we get a thermodynamic analysis of the fire proving that Van der Lubbe could not have been solely responsible armed only with the accelerants that he was described as having. Mm. Which is again... Uh, basically what the conclusion that the London trial had come to as well, although I assume they didn't have as, as um, fancy evidence to draw upon. Well, so the problem with Kellick's story is that it relied on forged documents for many of his findings, and when investigated, many of the documents used by the Luxembourg Committee did not exist as originals. Right, so shaky sources. Yes. Now, there's a question here as to whether... The problem is when you have a regime, a regime change, sometimes fake evidence is put into the record anyway. There's actually a big discussion about this with respect to what happened to the Romanian secret police after the fall of Ceausescu, in that there is a big fear that there's an awful lot of fabricated evidence in the Securitate archives now because members of the Securitate being aware that the regime change from communism to democratic government might be bad for them, put evidence into the record for blackmail purposes. So you can't claim that Kellick 
forged evidence, it is quite possible that members of the Gestapo and the like, simply as they saw how the tide was turning, when we should probably rewrite some of this evidence just to secure our own nest. Mm. Now, also, we have Benjamin Hitt. Now we're, now we're up to 2014, which is when he released his book, Burning the Reichstag. Um, he argues that given the extent of the fire and the time needed to set it, van der Lubbe could not have acted alone. Uh, same argument we've seen before. Um, so he was using evidence that became available after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, such as interviews by former Nazis and their collaborators with post-war historians. Mostly, yeah, mostly undertaken by the Soviets. Mm -hmm. um, and so he argues that the Nazis covered up their own involvement in the fire. Yeah, so basically, the Soviets recorded an awful lot of information in the aftermath of World War II, which they did not share with the West at all. When communism fell in Russia, suddenly these archives became available and historians are going, oh, so uh, you've known about some of this stuff since the late 40s, eh? Would have been nice to have shared that with us all this time. Mm. Um, he also um, made claims that Mr Tobias had blackmailed the director of the Munich-based Institute für Zeitgeschichte, Mr. Helmut Krausnick. Um, he blackmailed him with classified documents that would have revealed his Nazi past unless he endorsed Tobias's work. Now, is... Richard J. Evans argues that this claim kind of is not substantiated by anything other than, than rumour. And Richard J. Evans, who's the, the lead historian about these things, at least in the UK, finds Burning the Reichstag to once again be a fairly polemical work and also casts cast aspersions on the Soviet record here, going, well, the Soviets kind of did have an agenda in running questioning along particular lines and enticing people to give particular types of responses. Mm. And then even more recently, in mid-2019, the Hanoverscher Allgemeine Zeitung... Zeitung is um, newspaper or magazine. I can't remember what Allgemeine is, and I assume Hanoverscher means it was comes from Hanover in Germany. Um, so they published a, an affidavit from 1955 from a former SA member called Hans Martin Lennings, which was found in the archives of the Hanover Amtsgericht. Not sure what that is either. Um, so Mr. Lennings claimed that an SA group drove van der Lubbe to the Reichstag where they observed the strange smell of burning and clouds of smoke billowing through the room, so suggesting that it was already on fire when they got on the scene. The building was then um, on fire and van der Lubbe was deposited inside, left as a decoy. Um, and later, nearly all of those with knowledge of the fire had been executed, according to Mr. Lennings, while Mr. Lennings himself escaped execution by uh, managing to get out to Czechoslovakia. So I don't know uh, how, how uh, reliable that is, or if it's, if it's more, as you said before, of um, people planting evidence to, make, to, to rewrite history a little. Or having told the same story time and time again and eventually being forced to put it in an, in an affidavit. Mm. So, I mean, there, there are, to this day, there is still plenty of disagreement as to whether or not the Nazis were behind the Reichstag fire. But I, I understand that the majority of historians think they probably weren't. Yes, so there are historians out there who really do think that the Reichstag fire is either an unanswered question, so we just don't know who said it, was it the communists or was it the Nazis, or that there is a good reason to think that the Nazis were behind the event. 
But most historians of the fall of the Weimar Republic, the rise of the Third Reich, or most historians of the period around about World War I, World War II, largely agree that Fritz Tobias got the story right the first time round, that this was a case of a fire that was started, possibly withheld, by van der Lubbe, which the Nazis then opportunistically used to take power, but the fire itself was not a Nazi plot, even if what happened afterwards, the Nazis engineered to take control. Mm. Which kind of gets us to why people think of it as being a false flag. Yeah, I mean, if, if obviously if you believe the Nazis were behind it, then you think it's a false flag because they straight away blamed it on the communists. Now, um, e even, even if you don't think the Nazis um, started the fire, there's no doubt that they immediately pounced on the communists as being the obvious culprits. They immediately had this idea that... Because uh, I think they were a little paranoid about the possibility of some sort of communist revolution going to happen. They were... Well, I mean, the, re I mean, the reason why the Nazis became so effective... Because, I mean, they weren't, they weren't the majority pow power block in the parliament, but Hindenburg had got the Nazis and other far-right parties to go into a coalition in order to prevent the communists from having any real power. So it was a case of the communists were a threat to what Hindenburg and other parliamentarians thought was the proper way Germany should be run. And so it's quite obvious that once you start getting political agitation and what appears to be a politically motivated crime, the burning down of the Reichstag, end up going, hmm... Who's the underdog at the moment? It was those bloody communists. Mm. But nevertheless, I mean, the, the fact that they immediately pounced on the on the communists and immediately jumped to the conclusion that it was a conspiracy, that it was a, a gang of communists had been behind it, that was that was what they pushed right from the start, yeah, I mean, whether or not yeah. it, it was true. I mean, when Hitler arrived on the scene, he's reported as saying something along the lines of, this is a God-given signal. If this fire, as I believe, is the work of the communists, then we must crush out this murderous pest with an iron fist. Mm. So, I mean, it, it may be that they were wrong in thinking it was the work, it was a coordinated attack by a large communist organisation and, and instead was actually just the act of a single person um, who may not have been entirely uh, in his right mind. Um, but that's what they were predisposed to believe. Mm. That's what they were they were already prepared to think. And so they ran with that. And so seeing seeing them obviously go with what they wanted to be true right from the start... It doesn't mean they were actually wrong. Mm. But it does motivate, it, it does give people the suspicion that, yeah. well, if they, if they, you know, if, if they were willing to immediately blame their enemies no matter what, then you wouldn't put it past them yeah. to have engineered and the events I mean, in the first place. And, I mean, you can argue it wasn't investigated particularly thoroughly because once, once the Nazis went, it was the communists. They directed the police to investigate the communists. Now... They may well have got the right culprits, or culprit, mm. but you can fault them for not, not looking outside of their area of interest and entertaining alternative hypotheses. Mm. Although I very much doubt the Nazis were ever going to investigate the fact that maybe we started the fire. No, maybe we're no, the villains. But yes, I mean, like we said at the start, the, the four other communists who were brought to trial 
um, had all been picked up basically because they were high-ranking communists. There, there didn't seem to have been any any sort of evidence that would that, that would lead people to suspect that those people individually, specifically, were behind the fire. But they believed that it was the communists were behind it, and they were high ups in the communist party or communist organisations. So, so bring them in. Line them up with Kevin Spacey and Benicio del Toro. We don't mention Kevin Spacey well, on this podcast. Kevin Spacey is not the is not is is not the uh, most nice of human beings. It must be no, anyway. no, not at all. Um, so yeah, that that's it. Um, lots of people still think it's a false flag, and it, it's not a hundred percent either way. But it seems like the majority of people who actually study these things say it probably wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Um. I was going to talk about the parallels with 9-11, but we've kind of done that already a little bit. We have, it's, yeah. I mean, there is the similarities. There are some, yeah, some interesting similarities with 9-11 and also with the death of JFK. Mm. You have you have an official story, uh, which which people bring up theories to. You've got evidential anomalies, uh, particularly in in the 9-11 uh, case. Not so much in the JFK. It it, it is you. It, it's the cases of governments using an event to do a bunch of stuff that they'd been looking for an excuse to yeah. do, uh, which, which, which uh, brought on a lot of suspicion. The, the idea that, that the, the, the fact that they'd been waiting for an excuse and an excuse came along is all just a little bit too convenient for some people. And indeed, you can also make the argument that if the Reichstag fire hadn't occurred, the Nazis probably would have engineered some plot to they bring down the communists anyway. Yeah. So you end up going, well, I mean, maybe they didn't do it, but they certainly were thinking about doing mm. it, which also kind of fits in with the kind of discussions we've had around the Bay of Pigs fiasco and stuff like that. Where Operation you have, Northwoods. Yeah, you have agencies within the government who are actively talking about plots and capers, even if they're not enacting them. Fairly sure the Nazis were behind the scenes, planning all kinds of events to get rid of their communists, and then the Reichstag fire occurs, goes, oh, they did it to themselves. Congratulations. Yep. Yep. Turns out we won't need these yep. air plans we've been working on. Self-goal? Own goal. On goal. Mm. You really know nothing about sports. It's true. Wear it with pride. What is sports? Exactly. Precisely. And so there you go, the Reichstag fire. Uh, we, we, we've talked about it a little bit, now we've talked about it a lot. We have. Mm. We've been promising to talk about this for a while and we have delivered on that promise. And now we're going to go and talk about some other stuff, but only to our patrons. Yes, yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about Nick Smith, who's mm. a local MP who belongs to the National Party of Aotearoa New Zealand, who resigned from Parliament almost two weeks ago now. Under slightly dubious circumstances. Yes, on the promise of a unflattering story being leaked to the media about him. A story which has never occurred. And we're going to talk a little bit about what we think might have been going on there. Because it's quite possible Nick Smith got played. Mm. And got played possibly by a member of his own party. Or someone else. See, I was really hoping you'd go for a joke there and then we'd be able to go... Uh, no, no, I, I stand by both of those dun-dun-duns. So yes, we'll talk about that. We may talk about some other stuff as well, but you won't know unless until, you're a patron. Until you become a patron. Mm. It's, so, a do it's a dollar a month. 
It is. Or more if you want. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, not you, I mean if you, you want can, to you give us three million a month, yeah. we're not, we're not going to say no. No. I mean, it will put us into a very awkward taxation situation. Probably. But I, I think but we are, we're willing, we're, yeah, we're willing, we are willing to, take to jump on. through those hoops yeah. if you want to give us three, three, let's say 300 million. If you want to give us 300 million dollars a month. Mr. Bezos, yep. Yeah. I mean, he can afford to do he it. He could. He bloody I mean, could. He's going to space. Yeah. And apparently this now means that Richard Branson is going to rush into space. And people are going, they start rushing to space. Does that make it quite dangerous for them? Or if you're that rich, does that mean that actually the security precautions on the spacecraft are going to be so remarkably high that you can guarantee that nothing will go wrong? Who knows? Maybe if we're lucky, they'll all fly into the sun. Or so... we'll discover that actually the Earth is flat. There's a crystal dome which is covering the Earth. And Jeff Bezos will simply flatten himself onto the crystal dome as God looks down upon him mm. and judges him mercilessly. Probably, actually. So uh, that is all I think we have for you this, this fine week. So it simply remains for me to say goodbye. And for me to say, off what a scene, pet. Even though that's not a very good pronunciation, oh, but I'm sticking with it. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M.R.X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, Soylent Green is meeples.